Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is AJ O'Neill. AJ is an internationally recognised West End TV and film performer. He's a dancer, choreographer and long-standing teacher of the famous Pineapple Dance Studios, home to some of the world's most famous stars. His fitness classes have been listed in British Vogue, Cosmopolitan and Time Out as their best picks and viewed hundreds of thousands of times online. He was the personal trainer for dancers on ITV's Dance, 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 and he choreographed and presented Pop-Up Popstar for the Irish national broadcaster RTE. He's choreographed television dance-a-thons and dance virals, getting British celebrities like Olympic gold medalist Tom Daly, multi-million record selling singer Louise Redknapp, and TV and radio presenter Dermot O'Leary all dancing. He has numerous TV credits and has worked on and appeared in ads including Dior, Nintendo and Puma. His theatre credits include Chicago in the West End and the European and West End premiere of A Man of No Importance. And he played Jamie in the Irish premiere of the last five years. But after all that glitter, here comes the real shine. AJ gets everyone dancing. He's also known as Sit Down AJ, partly to rein in his own energy, but better known because of his inclusive work. His in-class and online poptastic cardio sessions are met with an outpouring of gratitude, thank yous and love. From people with sports injuries to life-changing conditions, young families to pensioners, wheelchair users and many of us who are socially stranded in the pandemic. He's also bringing new joy into the special educational needs space. Personally, I think there should be AJ dolls, hip hop AJ, fitness AJ, pop star AJ, wheelchair <laughs> AJ. But let's meet the real AJ. Hello, AJ. <laughs> oh wow! Well, I don't. I, I, there's literally no way to live up to, to live up to that introduction. Hello, Paula. Wow. Oh my god! I'd love to have a little Barbie line. That'd be amazing. Wouldn't it be a good idea? And they could have interchangeable mustaches. Yeah. Um, what mustache yeah. do you need to say? I need that boss mustache. You know what I mean? And they can be baby ones and they still have mustaches. Yeah. <laughs> the mustache is central. It's essential pieces. <laughs> mustache accessories. It's such exactly. a good idea. Well, Honestly. anyway, yeah, that's, some, that's something then for you to keep your eye on. And I have <laughs> to say, AJ, I think just reading your bio counts as a workout. It, it, yeah, I've had a few. I've had a few careers. Yeah. <laughs> I've had someone said to me today, "Oh, you've had like ten careers and ten lives." And I was like, "Just ten? <laughs> have I have I have I slackened off in the last few years?" Um, yeah, it's been it's been a weird it's been a weird old few decades. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's it's amazing what you've done. Um, it it really is. And and so what I'd like to kick off with that I find really interesting and amusing is you've described yourself as Billy Elliot in reverse. So incredibly, (laughs) you weren't in fact set on a career in dance. So what was the turning point? Yeah, um, yeah, I I randomly joked once that I was like Ellie Billius um, and that kind of stuck um, because my parents really wanted me to be a performer and I used to really love it, you know, sort of as a hobby, but I wanted to help people. Um, and back then, I didn't think that that was a thing that performing really could do, which is now looking back again, ridiculous, you know, because obviously I, I believe uh, just central to the thesis of this podcast, art can and does save us on a daily basis. Um, but no, back back then, I was like, I want, I want to help people. So I was doing psychology, sociology and English in UCD in Dublin, where I'm from. And uh, at Christmas, it would have been around Christmas. I don't actually know exactly when it was. But it was around millennium. So it's very, very, very beginning of 2000, 
2000, yeah, 2001. Um, and I went cycling to see my friend for coffee and something happened, something ran me off the road and don't know what. And I woke up wrapped around a lamppost with two, my front two teeth mostly missing and my nose broken and a face full of metal and um, a smashed skull. And I lost most of my memory of my childhood, uh, which never came back. And um, well, yeah, well, I couldn't read basically for about six months. I was getting migraines and never tried to read and I just couldn't focus. And I was really badly concussed. And um, yeah, I just had to stop. So my, uh, I had to drop out of UCD and um, sort of think of a new direction for my life. You know, I, was, I actually got into DCU to do journalism, which I really wanted to do because I love writing. I've ended up being a journalist as well anyway, which is nice. Most of the things I've come back around to at some point. But um, yeah, my mum said, why don't you do something that's a bit more physical, a bit less brain, you know, intensive. Um, which having done dance and performing, I would argue it is exactly as very intensive as anything else. Um, just different, you know, it's using it in a different way. But um, yeah, it was a lot more sort of like in my body rather than in my my head, which was having trouble with words at the time. So I auditioned for the College of Dance in Dublin and that was kind of what the switch was. That's a very yeah. long answer to what could have been a short answer, but there you go. No, 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 not, not at all. I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a very, very dramatic turning point. I mean, it sounds like it could have been a very life-threatening turning point. And it, and it's interesting, mm. um, your point that actually dance is just as demanding on the brain. But I wondered, coming out of that accident and the severity of the accident, do yeah. you think an added benefit of turning to dance was a form of therapy, not just physiotherapy for the body, but do you think that there was a real benefit mentally turning to dance? Yeah, absolutely. I would say um, dancing did save me, which in a way that I wasn't really uh, willing to admit at the time, I think, because I had the discipline of having to go to college every day, which I didn't particularly do. I became, I don't know if you ever heard of this, Paula, did you know you can be clinically apathetic? That's interesting. Cynically you know, apathetic. That's no, not cynically. Clin clinically apathetic. Not cynically. Oh, ah. um, I'm sure everyone's cynically apathetic. Um, <laughs> one cannot be apathetic and not be cynical. I'm sure. Uh, but uh, no, it's it's clinical apathy, which I didn't realize is a thing that I mm. apparently that's for about I don't know if it was months or a year after my accident. I couldn't give a monkey's. If you know yeah. what I mean. Um, yeah. Like, physically, physically couldn't. And having been someone who spent my entire life so stressed by everything uh to suddenly be like eh wasn't I think a massive relief but I wasn't happy I was just a bit more like able to relax inside feeling like I everything had gone to hell already anyway you know and I it was it was just very strange it was a very strange time. I don't really remember most of it to be honest I remember yeah. kind of seeing some of the feelings I remember going to the physical and then to talking therapy as a result and that actually became a massive thing that sort of like recovered some other stuff for me. And it's the, the dancing was definitely something I hooked onto in a way that, you know, I was like, I'm good at this, you know. Um, I think it was a I think it was a plus and a minus, uh, if you'd like, if you'd like some devil's advocate take on it. Yeah. Um, because I went to a college where a lot of the other people had done ballet since they were kids. I did ballet for the first time when I was 19. Um don't have the body for it, Paula. <laughs> wow. Do not have the body for that. No, I don't have the hips. Don't have the I mean or the lower back. Like I have my entire my entire family are basically like a bunch of wooden posts with heads attached to the top. Um <laughs> and I say that with love. They're, they're an attractive bunch of wooden posts, but like they're you know, they're yeah, they're flexible we ain't. Um so so for me, like trying to do that was, you know, it was it was a big challenge. Um and it did cause me to have lots of pain kind of in my back and in my neck. Um, and very quickly realized that some certain things were kind of going to be beyond me, which I was hoping kind of doing it every day would help. You know, I wanted to be able to do the splits. I wanted to be able to do all these things. And turned out I was very good at doing turns, but couldn't kick for like love and money, you know, um, which people did sort of look at and go, oh, you're not really a dancer, are you? If you can't kick your head. And of course that's wrong. Um, but that kind of contributed to a way that I kind of live my life now, which is, as you, as you mentioned, my, far too generous intro like I try and make everybody feel like they can do it um, because I believe they can I don't believe that there's any barriers to people you know doing the thing they want to do well if it's if it's something like performing or expression there's always going to be a way for someone to do it like 
and people telling me I couldn't kick high, just like people telling someone who, for example, uses a wheelchair that they can't dance. That yeah. is part of my French bullshit. Like it's yeah. it's so untrue, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's just basically sort of old, very set ideas of what something is. And then going, if it's not exactly this, then it's not the thing, you know. And I fell victim to that a lot because there's a lot of that going on. I think it's just one of those things that's really contributed to my worldview since. And I feel very strongly about sort of inclusivity and accessibility as a result. Um, but I went to Lanes then. I went across went across to England and Lanes is a dance school in Epsom. It's like quite famous. And um, I was really looking at it. I felt really chuffed to get into there. And it, again, it was kind of a case of like, oh, no, you you know, you, you've got talent. That's not the problem. It's just you can't do a lot of the things that we expect basic dancers to be able to do. Mm. And there was the occasional teacher who would say things like, Oh, you know, there's more to you than this. Like you are, you are still very talented. But then a lot of them would look at me like, Ugh. <laughs> you know, what I um, which when I was feeling apathetic was fine. But when I started to care again, we really started to grind my ears, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot to that's a lot to navigate because I understand as well that you had some really significant um experiences in terms of I suppose going through a therapy process and understanding issues around low self-esteem. So you went from the crisis point of the bike accident to therapy and exploring, you know, low self-esteem. And yet you persevered um, with those dance interests. You know, like you were saying, I was 19 when I started to do ballet. You know, you had all these challenges against you. And that's really interesting when you come from a context of crisis and trying to deal with low self-esteem. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? What I would say is, yeah, looking back, I was always surprised when later on therapists would say to me, but you did all this stuff. You know, when I was saying, oh, I'm worthless, they'd be like, but you did all this stuff, this really big, impressive stuff, even even though you didn't think you were worth anything or didn't like yourself, which back then had a lot of issues around self-worth, as you say. And like, I still did it, but I think partially it was sort of, I I guess I, I guess I saw everything in its own little case by case basis, you know, as we do when we're trying to like, um, denigrate ourselves and when we're trying to maintain a worldview that isn't actually aligned with the truth so you know when you when you hate yourself even if you do great things you're going to be all like hey but when i did it it was my mama you know um like you were in the show and everyone else goes well you're in the show and you're like yeah but i you know like i didn't do that well on day three or you know i mean which we all do and like artists definitely particularly are we just we're always kind of going, why why didn't I do better? You know? Mm. And I think that's partially the need for attention that drives a lot of arts, but also I think it's that the world we live in is it sort of rewards it rewards excellence in yeah. to a degree. But then but then after, you know, when you get to a certain echelon of like anything, and I've now worked in a bunch of different industries, like I worked in theater for a long time, then I sort of did TV and I did a bit of film and I did then I moved into stand-up comedy and then I moved into TV presenting. And then, what else was after that? Uh, the whole way through then, I was doing fitness. And so I would like, you know, do all these different jobs. And as I as I did them and as I put new businesses together and as I tried different stuff, I, I would, I have been very lucky in having had these opportunities to kind of like do amazing work in most of these fields. You know, but like the kind of work that if I told myself as a kid, I would never believe that I was going to do, you know, it's crazy. But then... I just didn't feel the thing. Like I didn't feel, it was very rare that I would have the actual feeling of being present and getting to kind of go, you're doing this, you know, this is happening. Do you know what I mean? Has that been the same for you? Um, I suppose for me, it always comes down to maybe questions around adequacy. So you kind of feel braver or have more courage the more adequate you feel. And so maybe that's to do with with feeling present, feeling able to be present. Um, and of course, that's different for everybody. But I think inadequacy speaks very clearly mm. to vulnerability. And yeah. What amazes me about stage performers is they have to put themselves into such 
a deep place of vulnerability. Um, you, yeah. you really are under the spotlight and you are judged by your audience. Um, mm. And again, going back to the fact that you ha- had serious issues around low self-esteem to the West End spotlight. <laughs> yeah, it's... Um... And- that was a weird one, actually. I do I do have a specific sort of, when I was saying to you, I think it's always on a case-by-case basis when you're making excuses to yourself why the great thing you did doesn't mean you're great, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think people, certainly I used to. Um, don't anymore, though. Now when I do great stuff, I'm like, ah, oh, that was great, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously very attractive. Um, <laughs> my neighbours must hate me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, but I, but it's so important to be able to celebrate when we do achieve things, right? And I just didn't ever feel it. And I know that particularly for Chicago, I think you do know this from previous um, chats or maybe from reading about it, but like my mum died during the first year of college when I was here. So she, she was diagnosed with cancer mm-hmm. uh, the previous January. Wow. And I came over to England to do the course because she didn't, she wanted, she was like, oh, I'm going to get better. And then... I went mm. to England because it was like, you have to go or else you realize that, you know, you don't think she's going to get better. So I went. Oh, I for, yeah, for my mom. Mm. So when she when she passed away, I came home for Christmas and she died. Um, oh, and, that's which so was, sad. It was, yeah, it was awful. But I mean, it's 20 years ago this January. So it's like a long time ago now. But it's, um, you know, it's she was such a huge formative part of my life. Like she was a musician, um, did shows. My, both my parents did shows. Um so my mom was such a huge part of that and she was so proud of me. But um, so when she passed away, like I I literally came back to college with this determination that I would not make the fact that I'd lost the last three months of her life, four months of her life, be in vain. So I was like, I'm going to do this course, I'm going to finish this course and prove that there was a reason that I missed out in the last few months, you know. And then at the end of the course, I got in Chicago and that was like my first big job. And I had two months, I did a short other show in the middle and demonstrating to kind of what would have been like it was was a dream job for me you know and also she would have just gone nuts she would have been an absolute pain in the arse to everyone like yeah yeah. she would have had such a great time just really being like absolutely infuriating about the fact that that I was like living that dream for you know uh, myself but also largely for her so I think that sorry to answer just a very very roundabout answer the question I feel pardon me I feel like Back then, I wasn't doing it for me. I was doing it for her and for my dad and for all the people who believed in me back home, basically. Yeah. Because um, it, it was the only thing I'd ever really been good at in my head. And I, my self-worth was so tied up in trying to achieve. So it was very much a case of other esteem, which I'm sure people talk about on here all the time. Um, but like, you know, other esteem, which which I thought was self-esteem. Like, I didn't know what self-esteem felt like until I was maybe 39 right. like genuinely at all like I had none and I didn't even understand like it's like asking somebody who you know trying to explain what blue looks like to someone who can't see like it's do you know what I mean like you can't describe it because unless you can see it it's it's just it's it's like a non-con non-concept mm-hmm. and so the idea of having this little sort of flame of self-worth inside myself I was a bit like well, no one has that. Like, if someone said to me, it's like a little flame inside me that never goes out, that's a little warmth that I can just hold on to because I know that it's there, which is how I feel self-worth now. And that's why I describe it like that. It's like a little pilot light. And yeah. on a good day, it's the size of the sun and it bursts out of your chest and warms everyone around you. And on a, on a bad day, you, you know, nurture it and you wrap it up in blankets and you give it ice cream and you let it watch cartoons and it's small and it kind of, you know, twinkles in the dark kind of thing. But like, it doesn't go out fully. It never does once once I found it anyway for me it's always been there as it's kind of like at its dimmest a tiny very low pilot light um but until I was 39 I never felt it in my yeah. entire life so yeah. you know back then I was filling that hole with doing stuff for other people and trying to prove to people I was worth something by what I could do for them or do that would impress them you know and mm. that's so I mean the drive it's it's a bit of a weird thing to say like I objectively I can look at my career now and go oh I did pretty amazing stuff some of it was really great but I still hear the little voice inside my head going yeah but you were bad in that thing or people didn't like you in that show you know like and it, those little voices are still there they're just a lot quieter now mm. um 
but also mm-hmm. you know that's thanks to medication that's also thanks to a lot of therapy and you know mm-hmm. uh, things that I didn't realize I needed back then yeah, yeah. because we do tend to be our worst self-critics don't we there is always the self-critic in in our heads that can deter us uh, from believing in ourselves or for taking a chance on something so considering yeah, yeah and so considering you know the the significant crises points in your life including the sadness of of losing your mum you you have nevertheless found amazing courage uh, i wonder whether you give yourself any credit for being courageous now i do yeah i think i it felt like it was more like panic back then <laughs> Like it was sort of more, I, I don't know, I, I had to look back and go, you know, during the during the most kind of soul searching um, childhood orientated bits of my therapy where I was really trying to go, you know, there's a, there's a little kid inside me who really needs to be looked after by me. You know, that that bit of therapy, mm. um, which is basically all of therapy. <laughs> That's like therapy boiled down to a single notion. It's like there's a kid inside you. Go make them happy and make them feel loved and protected. Um, you know, go do stuff all day long that they enjoy, um, if possible. And I think during that bit, when I was trying to sort of work that out, I had to go, you know, that that kid put up with a loss. Like that kid made it through a loss. And I'm writing, a, I think, as you know, a musical called Unicorn, which is about a trans, um, trans child. And she grows up to be a woman who... In many ways, it's very because a lot of it comes from my my lived experience, also the lived experience of my co-writers, um, you know, all of whom are gender diverse or trans. Um, like that 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 thing, like the final song of the show, which is called "There's a Girl," which is basically my feelings about growing up and being grateful for the kids that got me to this place, you know, told through that lens. And it was we did it in a workshop, and and I had like straight cisgender men in their 50s, 60s and 70s coming up and crying on me going, I'm not a trans woman, but I feel like I am. You know? mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, classic man. <laughs> stop, taking, stop taking up space. Um, but I was I was like, but it was amazing, you know, and, and, and women and people who were trans and people who weren't trans. And I think the thing is like, we all have that, that thing where we're like, God, you know, that the kid I was put up with a lot, even when we think we didn't, you know, everything is relative. Um, so whether, you know, you might think you had the perfect life, but obviously looking back, we all had stuff, you know, and um, I do know. So to, again, that's a really long answer, but I do. I, I'm really proud of the kid that I was because he hated himself and yet he kept going mm. and yet he kept striving, you know, and I'm not really even sure why, because mm. um, I don't remember a lot of it because of that really helpful bike accident. <laughs> but I just remember feeling terror like every single day of my life all the time. I don't think I understood there was a like outside of terror and sort of like feeling like it was all going to end badly and that it was all my own fault, you know. And now I now I wake up in the morning in those days where I'm just blissfully content and happy and I'm just watching the sun on the wall and I'm just like, yeah, you know. And then I go and write songs and like, what's not to love about that? And I help kids who are like me and neurodiverse, you know, and have real trouble sort of relating to the world at times. And I can help them get through stuff and show them that they're able to do things, which is so amazing. But that is really, really rewarding work, isn't it? And I imagine it's the same, actually, when you enjoy a performance on stage and you get that applause and the audience have clearly appreciated all of the work and have enjoyed the performance. It's all rewarding, isn't it? The same as when you're in that teaching capacity. Uh, with special educational needs children, it's mm. seeing that you can make a positive difference in in people's lives and on an emotional level. You know that their sense of achievement or the fact that you've created a space where people can let go of all their other worries, their daily worries, and just enjoy the artistic, creative performance you've created. You're you're gifting, aren't you? You're gifting a lot of emotional well-being from that point of view i'm trying to yeah i'm trying to thank you that's a really beautiful way of you're being very nice to me <laughs> later, <laughs> later on when you later on when you turn into the bad cop i'm gonna be real um but uh 
I no, I mean it's I am trying to. I want I want to create that space for people. And I things I love, interestingly, I've noticed when I used to perform all the time, I was like, oh, you know, it's great to be back and clapping and stuff. And that is nice, but actually I find clapping kind of uh the applause bit, I find it very awkward, actually. And what I really love is the bit where people come up to you afterwards, like in the pub or outside the stage door, and they go, Oh, you know, that that bit where you did that thing really like touched me. And also, particularly with writing. I think writing and teaching do that in a way that performing for me doesn't. Like I love, I love performing other people's songs, like singing, because I really, really love singing. And, you know, it's one of the things I mostly miss actually about my life now um, is getting to sort of interpret other people's songs and try and bring emotional truth to them. You know, I've always approached singing like an actor as opposed to a singer, but that's how I write. That's how I write as well. It's like all my songs are very, um, how would a person sing if this was actually happening to them so they tend to be very sort of conversational um and just be really emotionally just like gut gut pouring out raw honest you know which i which i love in songs like when i hear that in someone else's song like a, a well-placed bit of like devastating honesty i think it's just the thing that songs can do like poetry um in a way that almost nothing else can and i love that about songwriting and particularly for musicals where you're doing storytelling through song so i think pop songs can do it and the best pop songs do it in a way that's so kind of unobtrusive that you don't even notice that it's happening and then you realize you're sobbing because you realize the song's about you even though it was written by some guy who's been dead 70 years and lived in alabama like it you know it's it's that kind of universality of a specific experience when you boil it down to the things that are actually happening that matter mm-hmm. um but so i don't know you, you didn't mention so long but i do have extraordinarily bad ADHD and sometimes I get to the end of a sentence and I'm like that's a nice walk <laughs> it's just like, I don't know where I was going um, and I don't I don't know if I can find my way back but you know what no, there's, there's trees here there's trees um what sorry I was, was this about was this the same question about um <laughs> feedback we, yes we can just we can just enjoy the journey so what what I'm I sure. think what I think you're, everything you were just saying is highlighting <laughs> from my point of view is authenticity. Um, yes. I think that's what is really, really strong in your story. Uh, and I'm talking from, you know, toddler years up until now. And if you don't mind, um, I'll quote you from another interview. And this is just to give the listeners um, a real snapshot of how significantly difficult things were for you emotionally as a as a young child I think you're around the age of 12 and you looked into a mirror and you said to yourself you're gay and I cried I'll be hated I'll go to hell now the brutal honesty of which you were able to share that in in another interview seems to me really travel with authenticity now with everything you do. I think you really value authenticity in terms of the people you work with. Um, But in terms of just sincere honesty, I don't think you're trying to be anything that you're not, are you? You're brave enough to be who you are. Thank you. Uh, I think that's true. Yeah, I would say that I'm, I'd say if anything, I'm just trying really hard to be who I am. Do you know what I mean? That's that's what I'm trying to be. Um, and I guess the journey is trying to work out who that person is and try and get as close to being that person all the time in a way that helps the world to be a less shitty place. Is that what I'm trying to do? Yeah. Like I spent a long time in no way connected to myself. Um really dissociated all the time and you know just uh, traumatized and kind of living with the kind of trauma responses being all of my responses I would say which I think happens to a lot of us like you know I'm saying it as if it's like a big deal it was for me but I think it is a huge sway that the world's population is just all we're trying to do is get by you know we're just trying to get through the day um and when I got to a stage where I was able to I'm I'm now sober uh as well so it's been it's been a, a really sort of hectic few years of change so I got sober I realized I was non-binary or I realized that was a word to describe the thing I've always kind of felt that I was which you know contributed to a lot of the stuff that happened when I was a kid in terms of my gender and bullying and things um and yeah so sober non-binary I ended a very long relationship 
15 years, which is like almost half my lifetime. Um, moved out, you know, uh, lost my main kind of form of income because of the pandemic. And there's just a lot of things that kind have of changed very, very like swiftly. You know, they say like buses, like, <laughs> like horrible life changing events are like buses. They, they, they all come at once. Like, mm. and it was like that. It was a bit like, you know, my job, my house, my relationship, my uh, sanity as well, because I had a bit of a breakdown, like all kind of went at the same time. And I just had to sit there in the bubble and go, what, who actually am I? Like, what's, <laughs> what am I? Because I spent years trying to help people. I still want to, you know, I still, I love helping people. I love connecting to people. I think that's the thing I love doing. I love connecting to people on a level you can only do when you are being vulnerable. What's really standing out to me um, through everything you've said so far is real determination. And it makes me wonder whether that's in fact um really what fuels your 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 courage in many ways, because you have so many key points in your life, you know, where you will have felt very low, very vulnerable, uh, very insecure. Um, and yet you do keep powering through. And, and I do love that despite the horrible sadness around losing your mom, you've also returned to her something that she you knew she would love. And that was powered on by determination. And yeah. Um, it's very Billy Elliot, actually. This is very <laughs> Billy Elliot, isn't it? So Billy Elliot had to be very determined, didn't he? You know, the son of a coal miner that wanted to be a ballet dancer. You know, it was about outright determination, wasn't it, for him to change his life and do something that was so culturally unacceptable within his own family and at the risk of losing his family. Um, so. Do you consider yourself as someone who's very determined or is it something that retrospectively you suddenly realise you are? I, uh, again, good old therapy. Uh, <laughs> I didn't I didn't used to think I was very driven. I was just a bit like, oh, I'm just, you know, oh, I don't know where I'm going. That's a very ADHD thing of kind of going, I've got no direction, you know. Uh, but then I, I really, you, you do, I do. Like, I do have so much direction. Like, I... I try and lean towards the things that make me happy. And back when they used to stop, I used to stop myself because I shouldn't. And now I just lean in so hard, like so hard, <laughs> which is great. Like it's, it's awesome. You know, every, every job I do within reason is sort of helping me do a thing that my soul needs. You know, I do illustration for some of my work. I do dancing for some of my work. I do helping kids with special needs like me um, with, with a lot of my work. You know, it's, it's all, yeah, it's also sorry, I'm trying trying to answer a question quickly. Um, yes, I think I'm incredibly strong-willed and I would not have given myself credit for that years ago. But now I'm like, yeah, mm. go on, girl, go. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I, I love it. I love it about myself. It, it makes things happen. Yeah. Like, and I know I tend to bring people with me as well, which is nice. Like I yeah. get to bring people who I care about with me. You know, my ex-partner rewrote the script for Unicorn, which is the musical, and like I I made that happen initially and then he got more on board with it once it was sort of like starting to you know become a thing and I realized that in life some of us are kind of people who go let's start the thing you know and we do it and we don't necessarily know where it's going much like when I start a sentence <laughs> but like oh I'm gonna start that sentence though and I think that's mm. it's a gift and a curse of ADHD and also of I'm in the middle of working out whether or not I'm in the to find out if I'm slightly autistic as well in a few weeks um because some of my some of my hiding and sort of cocooning stuff my sensory overload seems to be a bit more than ADHD things so it's interesting because that's another kind of aspect of stuff that uh, people with autism lots of them are incredibly single-minded like when they get it when they get an idea or a thing that they want to do one of the aspects of autism that I've been reading about is, is that they hyper focus even more so than people with ADHD, which is an aspect of ADHD that's kind of well-known. And I hyper-focus so much when I get into a bit of a, like a headspace, you know, mm -hmm. like a moment. Um, and to the point that it annoys me when I have to do anything else, like, and like a child. And I know lots of people like that, but it does, it does make, it makes sense that maybe that's part of the willpower is to do with my neurodiversity. And I'm not sure how much of that is 
hyper-focused on ADHD or if there is some aspect of autism to it, which I guess we'll find out. And I think it doesn't, it doesn't change who I am. Mm. That's the, I think that's the thing I'm more and more discovering. And I think, you know, we, I don't know if we're the same age, but I, I don't know what age you are. And I would never deign to ask, well, certainly on the podcast. I, I am happy to announce I am 55. 55? Yeah. Oh my God. I thought you were my age. I'm 42. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm your big sis. Oh, guys, <laughs> anyone listening to this podcast right now, Paula has kept it. What? <laughs> um, I was going to say, <laughs> um, so that was just, that was just heterosexual, I guess. Sorry, Paula, I hope that, hope that worked for you. Um, feel free to, feel free to cut that out and we'll call the police. Um, you look great though. I mean, I think, I think I look great. Like I'm. Of course Doing, you look great. Of course well, you look know, great. But I, used, I used not to think that though. And I used to think I was ugly and, you know, all these things. And it's like, I, I look different now than I did then, but definitely growing into my face. Mm. <laughs> like, um, the mustache is doing strong work, Paula, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but I definitely like, I just like how I look now. And I yeah. used to hate it. Mm. And like, it's like, is that just mental health being improved by me looking after myself? Absolutely. There's part of that to it. Mm. Is it that age is a thing that's actually allowing me to, like myself more generally you know one of the reasons i'm more than happy to say um i'm 55 as a woman is i really do not buy into the need to pretend we are forever young and i don't consider what i look like and i think when you i suppose are practicing acceptance um just by not carrying all of these imposed conditions from the fake so-called beauty world, for example, and all yeah. those all those ageist concepts, God, I yeah. think I think you lead a happier life, and that that's why I have you know no issues at all saying I'm I'm 55, and as a woman I refuse to be enslaved to the fake beauty world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I just, I sorry. Do you know, what? I feel bad for saying you look great now. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> oh, guys, I take, it, I take it back. She looks shite. Um, no, I, no, I, I think like it's weird, isn't it? Because I do, I do feel like I do feel like how people look is the least interesting thing about them. Mm. Like it's it, it, you know, it's sort of it's how we choose to present ourselves. And I know it's how, that's part of socializing or socialization, you know, and all these things. But it's it is just like so less interesting to me than whether you can tell me something interesting that you're passionate about or that you care about or like expand my horizons or like just show me care you know I would say generosity of spirit is the most important thing in the world like that thing of you know when your parents say to you as a kid maybe your parents didn't but my parents you know would say to me when I was bullied or anything else happened my whole life that you know someone only says that to you because they're sad and they're jealous and they're projecting their own unhappiness and back when I hated myself I was like no they're right and now I'm like of course that's what's happening Mm -hmm. of course no one who is content in themselves needs to reach out to try and knock someone else down you don't need to pull people down Mm. unless you're down already and want to use them to knock Mm. yourself up you know like Mm. it's that's so true and I just think like that's that's the way the world yes and to not yeah to not live shame that's imposed on you because if you're in the yeah if you're in the business of acceptance because you know you're the authentic person that you are you know that your motivations are good why should you carry why should any of us carry the shame that other people try to impose on us particularly when it preach preach Paula preach yeah well when it, it comes from such artificial places like you know fake beauty ideas um, but you know, yeah. but body fascism, all of that stuff, and that's something that you're absolutely loved for in your online and in-person classes because it's just about having a great time. No one's having to meet expectations. Everybody's having a great time, and it's visible with the outpouring of comments on your on your video videos, oh, you. I should say. Um, so. It is what I love. It is what I, yeah, that's what I live for is when people just like people, particularly people who don't think that they can, you know, when, when I get them to a stage where they can just like dance around and have a good time. And I do a lot of work with, I don't know if you've seen on my Instagram, the Sober Girl Society. And so that's a sort of collective of like sober or sober curious of people who are considering becoming sober or trying to lessen their, um, or just, you know, uh, sort of, um, uh, be more careful with the relationship with alcohol mm. and it's, it's women and um 
uh, femme people and non-binary people. And to be honest, they're happy if men come, cis men, if they're respectful of kind of the space. You know, it's about giving people who are often um, marginalized by the sort of cis, straight, male community somewhere to go where they can kind of enjoy themselves and release, you know. And um, as a sort of very masculine presenting um, person, I was still drinking when I started doing those classes, even though I, I am an addict and now in recovery. But like I got sober whilst already working with them, you know. And what the, one of the most beautiful things was people would come to it and go, oh, I can't, like, I, I can't like dance sober. I've never danced sober. I haven't been sober on the dance floor in 35 years, you know, and I couldn't. And then by the end of that hour, they're like dancing around, screaming, singing, laughing. And then we do a meditation and the meditation would just, everyone would just cry because I would just say like, you know what, everybody in this room was beautiful just now and I'm not making it up because you're stuck with yourself, right? Like we're stuck, we're, we're, whoever else you go live with, you're going to be living with you until the last day you're alive. So you might as well get on your own team. <laughs> like mm, mm. At, the, at the most basic level and I didn't really understand that and I was sort of preaching that but not practicing it when I first started teaching those those classes and now when I do it it's just such a transformative experience it's one of the few weeks and oh my you should come come Paul um mm, but mm. it's on in a, in London Sunday week I think um mm, yeah but it's it's so it's just so gorgeous because everybody in that room is like on the same journey at different points mm. but we all need the same thing which is to be told like you deserve forgiveness for all the stuff you did wrong and you know because we all mess up all the time and you're only human but that's enough and I think when we say to people like you're enough this whole thing of you know it's kind of become a bit of a joke like the you're enough you know but it's true like you are like you're not you know people go one day I'll be good enough and it's like well no you're already exactly that person all of the ingredients are in the bowl (laughs) you know all you have to do is just like toss them the right way and like let them sit in the sun for a bit like it's you know and I think sitting in the sun as well is a really good metaphor for it because unless you let yourself have that light you know you're never going to feel the warmth did you see the thing I wrote the other day the thing about the storm Mm. yeah um yeah so I mean that was the that's a thing I think is really relevant to Mm. my life and also most of the people I know like the idea that we sort of see all the stuff that we're trying to run away from is a storm that we then make a little hovel for ourselves as a kid, you know, out of like emotional yeah. armor and addictions and sort of distractions and mm. like self-denial. And then it just, as we grow, the, the walls of that little enclosure don't grow with us and eventually they strangle us unless we bust out of it and have to then go through whatever storm it is we've been hiding from and realize it was just, mm. it was like an arm's length deep. You know, it's like a cyclone. It's not, it's not a hurricane. Like you just have to reach out and ask for help and, and admit that it's happening, <laughs> you know, like faces, mm. basically. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. No, it was really uh, a lovely piece of writing, and actually, I also thought it really was a good example, actually, um, of uh, reminding why things like curiosity, creative curiosity, uh, just mm. healthy curiosity, uh, self exploration is all really important. So as you say, those walls that can come in on us, you know, tighter and tighter and tighter, there's a role, isn't there, for creativity, which could be expressed through the arts, through performance arts, to help push those walls back. Yeah, how, how how do you feel about that? Do you feel that when you're working creatively, it could be when you're uh, working out choreography, be it for celebrities um, or for a, a regular class, that the creative process helps you exercise curiosity. And that's that's all part of a healthy mindset. It's allowing openness in your mind. Absolutely. I, I Honestly, I think the day I admitted to myself that I was an artist and let myself kind of say that without kind of going like, <laughs> you know, like apologize to myself for it, like to go, it's okay to admit to yourself, you are actually an artist. Because I never thought I was allowed to be one, which is which is stupid, like objectively stupid listening to my story. Like, yeah, clearly, clearly I've been an artist the whole time, but it's, yeah. you know, I was like the idea of being an artist with a couple A, you know, um, just felt very like, oh, only people who are have worth and are good at things and can make things that are special and unique and whatever else are that thing. And like accepting that I am all of those things and being able to go, 
and the stuff that I make, whether it's good or not, because who knows what good even means in this context, like that's very, um, it's an esoteric kind of, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. Um, <laughs> what I would say is, yes, I think what I've realized since admitting to myself that I'm an artist is that I need to do art. I need to do it every day. I need to do it in whatever way my body and brain and soul need to do it. So sometimes it is drawing. I draw all the time. Then when I get tired of drawing, I go write a song. Then when I get tired of writing a song, I go write a story. Then I draw some more. <laughs> then I sometimes choreograph. Um, it's I there's just like a there's just a creative fire and it just needs to be, it needs to be soaked and it also needs to be like let burn. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it makes me crazy and sad in a way that I used to think was a normal way to be, to not do these things. And I've realized now that if I've been doing them the whole time, like my my time spent inside that little sort of like tight space inside of a storm of my own creation would have been much less. Because mm-hmm. I think it would I would have forced me to go, actually, this is worth something. But it's, you know, this it's it's the word reflexive. I don't know. It's like if you're not able to accept that when you make something it's worth anything unless other people like it, then it would have been at the beck and call of other people's opinions. So I think maybe until I got to a stage where I was sober and able to go, you know, I'm making this for me because I love making this. And then everything that comes out of it is it, like so much better anyway. You know, it's that's the mad thing. People said to me, when you get sober, everything's going to just improve. And I was like, sure, John. And then, you know, six months of hell. And then, uh, yeah, everything I make now, I'm just like, oh, this is so much better than the stuff I used to make. Mm-hmm. Like, and, but I, I suppose, you know, this, but the stuff I used to make, I still appreciate because I was like, I managed to make that whilst trapped inside that tiny hovel in the middle of a storm. <laughs> you know, so it's mm. it's impressive to me that I managed to do anything. Once yeah, impressive. Never, yeah. Impressive. Yeah. I was sorry to interrupt. I was going to say impressive and essential to have that expression. Yes, yeah, so much so. Yeah. Mm. From your point of view, I mean, obviously the arts has benefited you and you are incredibly creative and fortunately uh very willing to express that you know as you move move through your days so how would you say it could be better understood that art can save us or help us in in different ways when you think about that question can art save us yeah i think my initial answer is that it's maybe the only thing that can like I think everything I haven't I haven't pre this I probably should have put some thought into this before I answered this but or before I came on the podcast um but I was like it'll, it'll come to me um I think you know when we say everything and anything that humans have ever made was imagined by us first right that's the nature of existence like we, anything we, we have to make has to have been thought up unless it's a happy accident which also you know tends to come from thinking of something else and getting it wrong um and art to me is is the expression of a soul and what it wants to see in the world so i sort of think art when i think of what art is i think art is anything done well in many ways like i think art is when you do something with grace art, art is when you do something with flair art is something done to its utmost, you know, like uh, the most of something, but also like, like, you know, that was, is it Plato with like the most tree-ish tree, you know, that thing, like creating something. I, I just believe like anything that someone does can be made into an art. Like I've seen people, you know, play football and it's an art the way they do it. When I do it, it looks like a car crash. Um, I've seen people do it with numbers. It's an art watching someone who, you know, when you see someone like working a spreadsheet, who knows how, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? And it's this, it's like, it's almost like magic. And I just think that's, that's the thing is like, there's a, there's an access humans have to flow, right? To the flow state, which I'm sure you must talk in this podcast about all the time. Um, the thing artists, um, and I say artists in the broadest sense of the word, writers, musicians, artists, visual, what, any, anything you do, anything you make, when you're like making something and it's almost like it just starts coming through you. So most people, when they're writing songs, say, oh, yeah, I just like I just put my pen down and then five minutes later, there was the song. You know? Or like it's when, you, when you're writing characters and it, they start sort of almost talking back to you or 
for me, when it's writing songs, it's like some songs just, it's like they write themselves, right? That's, that's flow state. It's the state whereby your brain is in, I think it's, is it beta waves? Is the, the, the safer technical term, but like it's, you know, there are ways to simulate it, but I think it's, it's, it's this state whereby it's almost like you are no longer in control. Yeah. And the art comes through you from somewhere else. That's yeah. how it feels. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It feels like magic to me. There's a book called Big Magic by, I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert. And she talks about it. The way she talks about it is like bits of random inspiration floating through the universe. And if they pop into your head, like a bit of like, almost like snow landing in your head, you kind of get an idea for a book. And then if you don't do it in time, it pops off your head and floats off to someone else's head, which I'm not sure if that's technically how I think it works. But um, <laughs> I, do th- I do think like, you know, inspiration which is all part of that as well. Like we we all have that capability of thinking of something that's never been thought of before. And sometimes it doesn't have to be built on, I mean, everything is always, you know, built on anything you've ever seen. And it's like, we are an amalgam of all the experiences that have come before us. And there's probably some, what's the word, genetic memory in there too. But like, sometimes we just come up with an idea and it is the idea that can, for example, purify an ocean or can you know show someone who's deaf dumb and blind how to communicate like it's it's we we have just these leaps sometimes happen and sometimes they're not leaps sometimes they're tiny painfully scrapes towards you know climbs up the horrific cliff face of like progress but like eventually we get there and I think that's where the art is, you know. Mm. I think science is an art. You know, like anyone can do science badly, but to do science well mm. is an art. And I think that's that's what I mean when I say I can say this is I think humans that are our most ingenious, our most creative, our most passionate, our most sort of oh, is ingenious the word I mean? I've always said ingenious. Um, and our most uh willing to let our dreams lead the way and then sort of push them to where they can be like that's that is art to me that's where art that's art is where that happens and I think um in terms of the future and things like you know uh the climate crisis and everything else happening you know the current swing back towards fascism and Mm. all these other things the thing that will save us is people with great ideas presenting them to everybody else in a way that makes them more palatable than you know the alternative and there will there will be art to that. Like there is an art to that, and the only way it'll ever reach people is if it's presented to them in a way that they find beautiful, interesting, funny, or connected. You know. So I think art has to save us, and I just hope that in some way I can be a part of it when it does. I guess. Yeah. No, no, that is it's a it's a really lovely uh, point of view. It's so interesting the layers of of different answers that the series accumulates and. Um, I really appreciate your time, AJ, today and to share all of those personal stories too, you know, from what's been really tough and difficult to how you've made your own, your own breakthroughs. And then just in your, your conclusion, really, to that question, can art save us? I think it's a, it's a lovely set of inspiring ideas that you've, you've been brave enough to live and brave enough to share. So Thank you very, very much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me.